Hey, hey, thanks to Hunter for untangling this for me. Hey, so. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, so I learned earlier that, uh, I, so I learned earlier that Hunter bikes 35 miles every morning before work. Uh, he, he is a beast. You guys need to get to know him. Anyway, so our goal, our goal for this, uh, our goal for this retreat is very simple. Uh, I want to help you guys. I mean, we want to help you guys as a ministry. We want to help our whole ministry as a whole. Um, get more comfortable reaching out to those who are not Christians and building relationships. And, and kind of the idea behind it is that we uh, want to merge two things that Jesus told us. Jesus told us to go out into the world, teaching and making disciples, baptizing, you know, the Great Commission. But Jesus also told us to love our neighbors. And it's very easy as Christians for those to come apart. And so what we want to do is we want to talk about that um, this weekend. And, and, and my goal in this is not that you guys have well, I've memorized a lot of information. My goal is not that you will know, you know, five or six gospel presentations to give or know which tracks to hand out. My goal is that you guys understand why as Christians we should want to build friendships with non-Christians, to be interested in them, to love them, to spend time with them, and to push the conversations when it's appropriate towards spiritual topics. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus did tell uh, his followers to go out into the world, baptizing and making disciples. He told us to go out and act, and he said, be, be his witnesses, witness to Jesus. And, uh, and he told them specifically Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. But we know as the church that we are still called to do that. One of the difficulties that we have um, in, in our context is that unlike the apostles, we're, we're not missionaries. You haven't been hired or sent out by a church to go to a specific location and spread the gospel there. Every single one of you, with the exception of those of you who grew up in Auburn, are in Auburn specifically to get an education. You're not professional ministers. You're not professional missionaries. You're not trained in either of those. Your day is not structured around that. And so, though, I love looking at Acts. One of the things that can be a disconnect for us, for you, is that you're in a little bit different situation than Paul and Peter were. There was a brief period where Paul made tents, but that wasn't the entirety of his ministry. That was just a brief period, right? And so, how, how do we reach out to Christians? I mean, nope, that's not right. How do we reach out to non-Christians? <laughs> To get to know them, to take Christ and to witness to them. Well, one of the problems with this is that often the way that we've done it in the church is that your interaction with non-Christians is limited to you knowing how to hand a tract to them, to you knowing how to, how to kind of say a 30-second gospel presentation to them. So you, you, it's kind of drive-by evangelism, right? That you get to know a non-Christian, you quickly kind of go in for the kill, metaphorically, and, and you, you give the gospel, you give a tract, and you see what happens. If they don't take you up on that, you're out of there. I mean, there's actually discussions of, like, elevator pitches, right? So that if you're on an elevator with someone, you can share the gospel in the time between the floors, right? And that's how we've often thought about evangelism. But um, studies have shown that the average non-Christian, it takes them four years, four years of being around Christians, of talking to Christians before they ever come to faith. And so most people come to Christ not because 
they were in an elevator with a non-Christian who didn't, who they didn't know, and they just did a quick elevator pitch. Most people come to Christ because people spent years investing in them, loving them from who they are, being their friends, spending time with them, serving them, and alongside with that, both displaying the Christian life, but also talking about what Christianity is. Many of you grew up in a Christian home, so you didn't have kind of the uh, stereotypical conversion where you were not a Christian and somebody shared the gospel with you and you became a Christian. But you are believers today because there are people in your life that spent hours with you. Obviously, your parents, youth ministers, Christian, uh, Christian friends who invested in you. But for some reason, when it comes to sharing the gospel, we often disconnect the two. For some reason, when it comes to sharing the gospel with a non-Christian, we, we sometimes because of our fear, um, sometimes because it's easier, we just learn how to hand a tract or quickly say something, or we just don't do it at all. But the same Jesus who told us to go out into the world making disciples tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So think about this for a moment. This is not for your response. Um, I will have, we'll have time for, for that in a second. Um, but think about this. If you were not a Christian, how would you want a, non, how would you want a Christian to treat you? Would you want to be a project? Would you want to be someone they just, they just give canned information to? Would you want to be somebody they hand a sheet of paper with and never follow up? Or would you want a non-Christian? I mean, would you want a Christian? Sorry, if you were not a Christian. Would you want, wouldn't you want a Christian to have a genuine interest in you? To want to be your friend? And as a part of opening up their lives to you. A part of sharing more about them. A part of uh, kind of carrying your burdens. They share more about Christ with you. See, to me, that's what I would want. I wouldn't want to be treated like I was just a consumer to be marketed to. And if I wasn't interested, you go on to the next person. I'd want to be treated as a friend. I'd want them to know that my, I I want to know that my thoughts matter. That my objections are heard. That my concerns are listened to and thought through. But the burdens of my life are really dealt with by a friend who's dealing with it from a different worldview as a Christian. And so as a, as a ministry, you know, we've been going through Acts and, and uh, looking at how the church initially go, went out and engaged a world that was not Christian. And on Sunday mornings, we're talking about how missionaries um, view the cultures they're in. And all this is intentional. All this is, a, is deliberate for us as a ministry because um, one of the things our ministry has not been good at in the past is reaching out to non-Christians. And so... I know that we have, um, we've been talking about this for, for several weeks. I also know that for those of you who are leaders, you've heard this concern of mine for more than, more than a couple of years. But I also know a lot of you, it's your first time in the ministry. It's maybe the first time you've been in a context where you've been asked to be a part of, of an effort to reach non-Christians. I hope not. I hope that your church has had this concern. But so this question comes, comes to me, like, how do we as a ministry... Begin to live out what Jesus said about taking the gospel to the nations while loving those who are around us. And there's a lot of ways we could we could uh, we could look at that. But because they pay me the big bucks and because I'm a genius, here's what I think we should do. I think that we should 
to understand what Jesus meant by doing those things, I think we should see what Jesus did. Make sense? Rational, reasonable. See, you guys, you guys are almost on my level. Um, so, I, typically I tell you to open your Bibles, but I have this very specific instruction. I'm very serious about this. Please close your Bibles. You don't uh, do what? <laughs> close your Bibles. If you have your phone out, um, if you have your phone out, don't. Uh, please don't follow the scripture. In a second, I will get you to open your your Bibles. Um, actually, um, so I lost my Bible. I have one. It's not my favorite. Does anybody have an NIV? Is this an NIV? NIV. NIV. That's a phone. I don't want a phone. NIV, right there. Let me see it. Thank you. Uh, I didn't apply to me because I'm righteous and holy. You're not above the law. So. I think it's NIV. It is. It is. It's large print. It's large print. How old are you? I got that Bible from Rachel. So. Okay. Oh no. Bible burn. Uh, so. Yeah. Hey, so here's, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to read to you three parables that Jesus told a crowd. And you know these parables if you grew up in church. You know them really well. Um, and so this isn't, for most of you, this isn't going to be new to you. But I want you to try to listen to the parables as if it's new to you. And I'm going to ask you at the end, what do these parables tell you about God? Because God is the main actor in all three of these. So at the end of this, of reading these three parables, I want you to, and we're going to have time to discuss this, what do these parables teach us about our God? So here we go. I'm going to go up here where there's light. (laughs) Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continues, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, 
He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and my and, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to, the, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your, your orders. That you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the parable of the lost sheep the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost son, which we also call the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus, the son of God in the flesh, spoke those parables to a group of people around him. Now, I already gave this away, but I hope you know that the, the main actor in all those is God the Father. So what do you learn about God from those parables? Don't read your Bibles. Love is uh, desperate. When he loses something, he'd do anything to get it back. Okay, his, his love is desperate. So like when he when he loses a person, he's desperate to get them back. Kind of. Is that your? Yeah, he'd do anything. Yeah. He doesn't leave anyone behind. He pre- Go ahead. That God finds us valuable um, because, you know, the, the sheep are the shepherd's livelihood and the, the coin is something that's valuable to the one who lost it. So God finds us valuable? Yeah. yeah. I think um, the father's love came before his pride. He could have easily said, you love me. Uh, you're not welcome here anymore, but he loved his son so much that he welcomed him back with open arms and hmm. put any pride or any sense of anything else aside. Yeah, um, yeah. so the, the, when the son's returning, the father's love outweighs any sense of retribution. Yeah. What else? He's searching for us long before we decide that we want to be with him that. Yeah, he's, he's pursuing or searching people before they're pursuing him. 
What else do you learn about God the Father? Yes. He finds ways to kind of like draw us back to him. Yeah. Yeah, so he finds ways to draw us back. He loves each and every one of us, kind of like Jamie was saying. Normally we think about the one who would be lost or the son who abandons as the least valuable or the, the one who's not as praised as much, but God shows that everyone is uh, hmm. worthy of his love. Yeah. Yeah, that he loves everyone. Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about the, the third parable, what we call the prodigal son, um, he could have just written off the son, the younger son. And instead, he still loved him. He was excited when he returned. What else? He draws other people into the rejoicing. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. He draws other people into the into the rejoicing. I mean, you notice that in... Uh, um, uh, in, in, in the parable of the lost sheep, it, it says that about uh, heaven and angels rejoicing in both the sheep and the coin. It makes that reference. So you get this idea that those around God are rejoicing. The implication is that God is rejoicing too, obviously. So a God who, who draws, who pursues, who's active, who's loving, who's valued everybody. You know, when people return, he, he rejoices. But I think about the emotional life of God here, Right? It's a God who's overwhelmed with joy. When one of his sons and daughters who had previously been lost comes back to him. Anything else? I'm not searching for a particular answer. Yes. I think with the prodigal son, um, he saw him coming from a long way off, so it seems like he was already on the look. He was already watching for him to be coming back. Mm, Yeah. You don't spot someone coming from a long way off accidentally. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. Kind of searching the horizon every day to see if his son's coming back. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, he's enough. The, I mean, the, sh- the sheep don't need it anymore. And then if you look at his response to the, the older son's complaint is, you've had me this whole time. What, what, what more do you need? Yeah. Anything else? I just want you to reflect on it. Did you have your hand up, Lauren? I didn't see. Yeah. God gets excited. God gets excited. That's, God that's, created the universe, and a man comes back to him, and he's overwhelmed, and he's excited. Yeah. Yeah, that God kind of has that, that emotion. The creator of the universe, in, in some way, is emotional about people returning to him. Yes. But the, um, God also, like, waits for us to come back to him. Like, he doesn't make us come to him. He, like, waits until we're ready to come back. So yeah. Like, if we fall away from him and like it's like we're he waits until we're drawn back to him by our own will yeah yeah and just to put this in the context I know you don't mean this but it's not a passive waiting like he's not forcing them but he's pursuing but patient you know so you get that combination anything else he's willing to let us wander off yeah he'll find us or let us squander everything we've had before rewarding us us bringing us back in yeah, he let, make mistakes. Yeah, he lets them make some make mistakes. So, someone just summarize what we. I mean, just in a few words, how would you summarize the God that we've described here after reading these parables, Larry? I think it culminates to our God is a God of free will and mercy. A God of free will and mercy. What else? How how would you summarize this? He's faithful to us. Faithful to us. The way that when I've taught these parables, the way I've summarized it is 
Our God is a God who pursues and embraces the lost. Okay, without opening your Bibles, and if you've heard me teach on these parables before, don't answer this question. Because uh, uh, some of you who have been around a while have heard me make this point. Why did Jesus tell these parables? Why did Jesus stand in front of this crowd, tell these three parables to get them to see what you have just said about God? Isn't that what Jesus was there to do? To bring Israel back to him and also get everyone else? Okay. Jesus' mission was to, to seek and save the lost. Right, didn't come to the righteous, but the unrighteous, the, 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 those who are well don't need a doctor. Um, so what, why did he tell the parables, Larry? Uh, maybe it comes back to uh, the free will point. Is he wants you to see him, not force you to believe him. So come back, yeah, to see him and not force him. What else? Uniting the, like uniting the Jewish people with the Gentiles or the people around them. So uniting the people? Kind of going along with that uh, uh, Good Samaritan story, just trying to uh, unite all of them because he's all of our uh, Savior. Yeah, so Savior of Jews and Gentiles, so he's trying to combine. What else? Why, why in Luke 15 does he tell these parables? Anyone else? Was it after he killed the woman on the Sabbath? Was it? Okay. No. Uh, I'm asking you the question, so, uh Killing the woman on the Sabbath. So here's what, here's what interests me about these parables. Um, is that, raise your hand if, you, if you've ever heard these parables before. <laughs> okay. Hi. I did. Some of you are being coy. I can't see. Okay. So most of you, like almost all of you have seen these parables before, especially Blair. He's really excited. Uh, <laughs> expert in these. Um, and so what we've done is we, as Christians, we've often taken these parables and we've, we've pulled them out of, the con- out of context and we've made their main point that we should reach the lost or that God loves the lost, okay? But Jesus told these parables for a very specific reason. Will somebody read the first verse, maybe two verses of Luke 15? It's before he jumps into the, the parable of the lost sheep. Somebody read aloud the first two verses. No! <laughs> yes, you can open your Bibles. Luke 15. Now the tax wait, hold on. Let, wait, the people are turning. Also, you're the worst person to read it because you're just reading it to the fish. I can turn around. <laughs> we'll turn around there. Maybe the fish aren't Christians. <laughs> That's a good point. St. Francis would have something to say to you, Micah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Quiet. No, no. I can go now? Okay. Yes, please. Um, just stop. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and, and eats with them. So he told them this parable. All right, stop. That's what you need to say. Yeah. Okay. So, what is, what, what's the context of these parables? Um, so, uh, this is a good guess, but no. The Pharisees are trying to make him out to be bad or just have a reason for the Jews to not follow him because they, they were saying, hey, this is not 
a guy. He's hanging, looking at people he's surrounding himself with. They're looking at people he's surrounding himself with. Okay. And they're criticizing that. So here's the setup. Here's what's going on. And, and I, we're going to keep thinking about this. All right. So stay engaged. Uh, Jesus is spending time with the tax collectors and the sinners. Who are the tax collectors? Sellouts for Rome. They're hated, huh? What? Somebody said something. Traitors. 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 Somebody's saying something over here. Matthew, right? So one of the apostles, or Matthew, was a tax collector. So here's the thing. Um, Huh? Yes, they're cheats. So uh, the way that the Rome often did with provinces like this is they came in and they went to the ruler over the province and they said, here's how much money you owe us. And so then the ruler, it was up to the ruler how he collected taxes. And so often they created like a farming system where they would hire out people who would go and have the authority of the government to collect taxes. And then they would, they would turn around and pay money up to the governor and the governor would send money to um, Rome. And so... Um, you might be hired as a tax collector and you would go door to door and say, you owe me so much money. You owe me $2,000 for this year. And people would pay you $2,000 where you turn around and if to make money, you sent, you, you charge more than you really had to send up to the governor. Right. Um, and, and it was often up to you how much you charged. And so the tax collectors often made good money by overtaxing people. So they didn't like them to begin with because you don't like paying taxes. You, wouldn't, you would especially not like paying taxes if one of your fellow citizens came around and overcharged you just so they made more money. But here's the thing. The Jews hated tax collectors because they hated the Romans. The Romans were these pagan idolaters who came and took over God's promised land and told God's people how to run things. And at various times tried to take idols into the temple. They hated the Romans. So if you were a Jewish person, you would hate paying money to the Romans because you're supporting the empire that's oppressing you. And now you have fellow Jews who are going out and have teamed up with the Romans, the evil guys, the bad guys, to, to take money from other Jews. So you would see them as awful people. They're traitors. They're not just, they haven't just betrayed your nation. They've betrayed, in your eyes, the very people of God. They've betrayed what God wants. They're one of the kind of paradigms of, of a sinner, of a, of, a, of a rebel against God. And then he says, tax collectors and sinners. We don't know who the sinners are, are but often in Luke, Luke will call a, a, a sexually promiscuous woman, sometimes a prostitute, sometimes not, uh, a sinner. It's kind of a general word for her. So you get the picture in a, in a culture where purity was really valued and sexual sin was often shamed heavily. That Jesus is hanging out with the people who betrayed the people of God, and he's hanging out with people who, who were engaged in sins that everybody thought was very shameful. And so the Pharisees are religious people who think that, um, uh, that, the, the, what, they, what needs to happen is we need to separate from sinners. Because God called his people to be holy, and one way for his people to be holy is to not be around sin. And by the way, the, uh, there's a theological element to it for them that they... They thought that if they purified the nation, God would kick out the Romans. How do you deal with the Romans running things? One way would be to take up arms and try to defeat them, which didn't work well. But the other way was to do what you think God wants you to do. So he would kick out the Romans, and they thought that God wanted kind of extreme radical holiness. By the way, he does. But the way that they interpreted that was don't hang around sinners. 
Don't hang around tax collectors. And so um, Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees who are very respected. You think the Pharisees are the bad guys, but everybody at this time thought they were the good guys. They were holy. They were righteous. Uh, The way I often try to describe it is that your parents would want you to grow up to be a Pharisee back then. That's how well-liked they were. So the Pharisees who people saw and respected saw Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, and they said, that's wrong. He should not be doing that. And Jesus turns and tells them those three parables. So think about this. Think about this. How are those three parables an answer or response to their criticism of Jesus? Jesus, you're hanging out with sinners. You shouldn't do that. Notice it's not that Jesus is handing out gospel tracts. It's not that Jesus has a megaphone in the corner yelling at them when they walk by. He's at dinner parties with them. Pharisees get mad. Jesus tells these three parables that tell you about God. You've already brought that out. So why does Jesus tell them these parables about God to defend his behavior? Connect those dots. The the ones who need the love to show that God will, uh, you know, give give love to that anyone who needs it. And we're all sinners, so we all need it. But they, you know, not say they need attention. It's not to run away from them, it's to embrace them. Not to run away from them, to embrace them? What else? Larry in the back? I think it might uh, be sort of not really focusing on the lost, but the duality between the lost and the found, and how God doesn't distinguish lines between them, but they're all God's people. Hmm. I think... Um, Speak loudly. I think the parable of the prodigal son uh, really kind of gets into the, <coughs> the whole sinner aspect of it, because he was... Um, he went off to this other country and lived with them and lost his money whoring and drinking, and then was a swine herd, which is, like, you don't do that in Jewish culture. Like, that's, like, pigs are disgusting, dirty animals. Like, they're a dirty animal. You don't work with pigs. You don't eat the same things pigs are eating. And that man was received joyfully back into the family. Okay. What else? How how does this respond? How is this response to the Pharisees? I think it's going to show them that, like, God would not be above pursuing those people on earth, which, I mean, he he was as Jesus, but, like, the fact that they were saying that he's wrong for being with these people and he shares these stories to show how heavily God pursues those people and he's saying that, like, God would be doing this on foot. Yes. Pursuing these people the way I am. Yes. Like, so he's talking to very religious people who think that they know, that they understand what God the Father wants. And what God the Father wants of you is to be separate, to be apart from the sinners. And Jesus looks at them and he tells these stories to, in effect, say, if you really understood the heart of our Father, if you really understood what God wanted, if you really understood how much God loved and cherished the lost then you would be spending time with them. Don't you get the criticism of Jesus that he spends a lot of time with non-Christians? And his response to that isn't, well, shut up, or well, this is my evangelism strategy. It's, it's if you guys just knew how much God the Father loves the lost, if you understood how much God the Father rejoices when someone comes, to, comes back to faith in him, then you would be doing what I'm doing. Jesus' reply to them is that you don't understand God. Jesus looks 
at a bunch of religious people who spend most of their time around religious people, who look down on people who spend most of their time with unreligious people, non-religious people, and Jesus says, the reason you think that isn't because your strategy is bad, it isn't because you've been taught wrong, it's because you don't understand God. And the moment you get a glimpse of our God and his heart and his love for the lost, you will be at the party with me. You will be eating dinner with them. You'll be spending time with them. There'll be no sinner who's so shameful or disgusting or so far gone that you don't want to spend time with them. What I want you to see is we've taken these parables, which Jesus meant to completely destroy any idea of a Christian bubble. We've taken them completely out of context and made them about parables that make us know that, that the lost can come to God. And so let's go give pamphlets and let's memorize uh, uh, speeches to give to them. And Jesus tells these parables because he wants you to spend time with non-Christians. When I was hired here, um, goodness, three and a half years ago, um, I wanted to, to I, I was in Kentucky I didn't know hardly any, any, anyone in the ministry, and I didn't know anything about, I mean, I had come through this ministry years before, and I wanted to figure out what was going on, going on in the ministry. So I sent surveys out to a few students, um, the equivalent of what today are known as freshman focus leaders. So I sent uh, surveys out to, to several students, and, um, and one of the things almost every one of them talked about was that the ACSC, they talked about what they call the ACSC bubble. And, and what they mean by that is that they, they, they uh, spend their time with people from the ACSC, they live with people from the ACSC, they date people from within the ACSC. By the way, if you have friends in other ministries, this still applies to you. You're just in a bigger bubble, but it's still a bubble, right? <laughs> in other words, they're spending all their time around Christians. And that was a problem, but they didn't know what to do about it. And, I, and I'm not trying to be, um, this isn't, I'm not trying to be like religiously judgmental of you when I say this, but realize that if that describes you, then what Jesus says to you is your life isn't modeled after God's own heart. Because if it were, your time would look different. It's easy for you, freshmen, you know, listen to this. It's easy. The rest of you don't have to. Uh, it's easy for you to be drawn in to our community. You could make a lot, you could make several good friends. You could hopefully, you know, may, maybe find someone to date. I don't know. I don't know the prospects of each individual one of you. You could find someone to date. Huh? <laughs> Uh, the uh, I'll let that one go. Uh, the uh, uh, I'm trying. What was I saying? Was I saying? Yes. Thank you. Oh, what was I? Yes. So uh, um, we even help you find roommates within the ministry. If you want to go on our website, aidforjesus.org, and you can go to roommate. I mean, you can go to like new student, current student, go down roommate request, and you can fill it out. We'll help you live with people from the ministry. Some of you have jobs with people for, from the ministry. <laughs> You're in study groups with people from the ministry. You take classes with people from the ministry. And here's the thing. You do that, and that's great because you get to know other Christians. But here's the problem is you never get to know a non-Christian very well. 
And that's a problem, not because it kind of messes with our evangelism strategy. It's because that's not what God would do. If God the Father came to earth and joined our ministry, he probably would. (laughs) He would spend a lot of time. That was probably blasphemous. Uh, (laughs) Almost certainly. I'll just sit for y'all's safety, I'll stand up here. Uh, so, uh, God, okay. so um, God the Father would not invest most of his time in our ministry. Now, that's dangerous for me to say because we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get you to come to things. And there's someone on staff who gets really worked up when people don't show up at Devo. It's Marley. Uh, <laughs> calm her down. She gets really upset. You guys should come for her. Uh, so I want you to be at events, but often my desire for you to be at events can be at conflict in conflict with what God wants you to do. Because you get that Jesus could have done more religious events, quote unquote religious events, right? But instead he spent time with sinners. Why? Because that was the most godly thing to do. It might not have been the most religious thing to do, it was the most godly thing to do. So what I want you guys to see As we begin this retreat, there'll be two other lessons. Is that it's not that you should love the lost, because you should. But if you leave here just thinking, I should love the lost, you have not gotten what we want you to hear. Because you should leave this retreat thinking about how you can spend time with the lost. Not as a project, but become friends with them. I want it to be true of every one of you that one of your best friends is a non-Christian. I want it to be true of every one of you that you're spending almost as much time, if not as much time, with non-Christians as you spend with people in our ministry. There's a balance here that you need to be encouraged and edified. I get that. And that's, that's an individual thing about how much that means. Some of you could need to be involved more with Christians. Some of you need to be involved more with non-Christians. Some of you are balancing it well. But the thing that God wants of you the thing that would be true of you if you had the heart of God is that you should be spending time with non-Christians. Significant time. Jesus is spending enough time with them that they criticize it. In another gospel, they criticize in this way. Jesus is spending so much time with non-Christians, he must be a drunk. He's spending so much time at parties with them. Think about how much time that Jesus had to spend with non-Christians that people are accusing a rabbi of being a drunk because he's at so many parties. And he's not just spending a lot of time with them. He's spending a lot of time in doing socially, this is for free, but socially significant things. In Jewish culture, one of the most intimate things you could do with a friend was have him over for dinner. You didn't, it was very important. There was a whole kind of ritual around it. And Jesus spent time with them having dinner with them. If you leave this retreat and you're not spending time with non-Christians and doing socially significant things, right? Investing in them, knowing them. Then you haven't listened to me. But what I'm really concerned about is you haven't listened to how Jesus describes our God. So, here's what we're going to do. We are going to break up into our community groups, community group leaders, 
you will get a text from me in like 45 seconds with a couple of with a few questions. You guys are going to talk through the questions, um, and then we're going to have a fire and sing. So, um, community group leaders, you need. Uh, um, what I'll do is dismiss you one group at a time. By the way, if if you're not in a community group um, and you see one of your friends in a group, just go with them. Okay. Uh, don't worry about the numbers of the group, whatever. If you're not in a community group, you haven't been coming to one, just go with uh, with a friend. All right? So, um, is that clear? Everybody good? And uh, what time is it? 8.54, almost 9. So let's, uh, like, kind of 9.20 or so, community group leaders, you can dismiss. You don't have to work through all the questions in exhaustive detail. And community group leaders, when you get in your groups, if you want to subdivide even more, you can, or you can do it all, all the big groups. That's up to you guys. I don't care. My job is done. Uh, but um, so let's start with this. Uh, I wish I knew the group, the group lead, uh, Marley and Skyler. If you're in Marley and Skyler's group or if you're a friend of someone in their group. <clears throat> to reference your previous statement about Jesus spending time in our ministry, you guys go to this thing. <laughs> Jesus went to the fishing camp. Uh, the physician came to the sick, not the well. What did I, did I miss? It? Quote that. That's you. No, that's you. He, he, he would definitely come to our ministry, and I said, "Yeah." He didn't go to the. He didn't go to the wow. Remind me to laugh later. <laughs> oh, what an Emily's group. Oh, what an Emily's group. That's not. That's not cool. I'm like, come on. <laughs> but if, if I thought about that, I could have dismissed you. Micah, you do nothing but dismiss. I don't. I should say that I y'all's group get ready. Go ahead, just prepare. All right. 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 Lauren Henry's group. Where's James Glass? Featuring Glass. I will help you with that fight. You got him, Mike. I'll do like yours. Yeah, I will. Where's Lauren? Let's see. Let's see. Hurry, people. Come on. We know he's not going to be win the athletics tomorrow. Right? Got him. Nailed it. Sick burn. <laughs> All right, uh, Lindsay and Blair's group, please stand and leave. Lindsay and Blair. Uh, why did I bring open toed shoes? Are those technically open toe? Yeah. I don't know, they're closed toe with holes. They're essentially open toe. No. Not essentially. They're shoes with holes in them. That's that's why you're getting sand in them. Not